this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. everyone here we are with our guest Tom Herr. Thank you for being on the show Tom. Hey it's great to be with you both. This episode we are focused on social emotional learning and really how to develop an SEL culture. With this in mind we could not think of anyone better to have this conversation with than Tom Herr. TJ why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about Tom. Thanks Joe. Tom H. Herr retired after leading the New City School in St. Louis, Missouri for 34 years and is now the emeritus head of school. He is currently a scholar in residence at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and he teaches in the educational leadership program, preparing prospective principals for their role in schools. He also led the I6 New Heads Network and founded the nonprofit management program at Washington University in St. Louis. Her has written five books, and we love them all. Today, we're going to be talking about his newest book called Taking Social and Emotional Learning Schoolwide, The Formative Five Success Skills for Students and Staff. He's written more than 150 articles, including the principal connection column in Educational Leadership Magazine from 2004 to 2017. And you all know that we love that magazine and all of Tom's work in it. Let's get started here, Tom. We want to know uh, a, a ton that, about the SEL work that you've done um, and the formative five success skills. But one thing that we found in particular very helpful in your book on schoolwide SEL is how you draw the difference in SEL skills through a moral versus performance character perspective. We found that very interesting. So we want to start there. Can you say more about this thinking? And why it's critical to understand this distinction between the two when developing a school-wide culture of social and emotional learning. Absolutely. And first, th thank you uh, both for the invitation. TJ, the kind words you said about me must have been written by my mother, uh, but it was very nice to hear them. Um, so, so let me back up and talk about moral versus character. And I think versus is the appropriate verb, if you will. But let me back up first and say, just to... to point out the obvious, and that is one of the main things that I've been saying in my last two books and my next one coming up is a shorthand way that we all uh, endorse of, of the world, and that is who you are is more important than what you know. And let me say that again, who you are is more important than what you know. And that's not to disdain academics at all. I mean, don't misunderstand me. Kids need to know how to read, write, and calculate. I'm all about that. I'm into semicolons versus colons, da 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 da. But, but uh, academics should be the floor, not the ceiling. And I think SEL is really what we need to focus on when we prepare kids for life. Now, there's two, two thoughts about that. Um, the first one, and we'll come back to this, I suspect, is I've given scores, maybe hundreds of presentations about SEL to schools, school districts, conferences. And almost invariably, people, educators, principals, teachers, 
come up to me and they say, Tom, this is really great. I agree with it. And there's a but, and the but is, but always they say almost, gosh, how can I find the time to do this? Or I'm in a situation where test scores are really all we think about. And those are, those are the realities. I get that. And so that's why my last book, Taking Social Emotional Learning Schoolwide, use culture as a tool. And we'll come back to that. But I just want to put that out earlier for the listeners to, to think about, because I know that everybody who's listening to this has too much to do and not enough time to do it. That's a given. So that's a hook to get in. Now to come back, TJ, very specifically to your question, one way to look at social emotional learning is not simply as an abstract, but rather to say there's a couple components of that. And the one that breaks out for me uh, is a guy named David Shields, who wrote about this in Phi Delta Kappa probably a decade ago. And basically he distinguished between moral and performance character. And performance character is about basically uh, achievement. It's about doing well. And those would be attributes like effort, um, pursues the best, high standards, the kinds of things that basically are on report cards that we talk about kids, progress. That's all well and good, and I don't mean to diminish them, but he also talked about moral character. And moral character is basically relationships with other people, being a good person. And it seems to me when we look at school report cards, particularly at the elementary level, because at the secondary level, we tend not to think of this stuff. But at the elementary level, we talk about um, does a good job, uh, works well, gives best effort. We tend not to talk about cares about other people, uh, is a good friend, uh, shows empathy. So that's the distinction. And let me put it in another context, which I think may be even more helpful to your listeners. Years ago, Thomas Friedman wrote an article, a wonderful article, and he talked about uh, resume versus legacy virtues. And basically his, his resume virtues are what we're calling performance character and his resume and his legacy virtues are what we're calling moral character. And basically the comment that Friedman made is that most of us through our lives spend a lot of time working on our resume virtues. We work hard, we do our job, we get ahead, we do all that stuff. But he says, when you go to uh, funerals, that's not what they talk about. You know, they don't say, boy, um, Joe was really a hard worker. TJ really always did his best. Uh, Sally was somebody who took extra responsibilities. What they talk about is what kind of people we are. And the case I would make, and I think all of our listeners will agree with this, is that for years we've assumed that if a kid comes to the classroom deficient in, in reading, deficient in linguistic skills, deficient in computation skills, we give that kid extra help. Maybe we spend more time with her, we put him in a remedial class, whatever. But too often we don't do that if the same kid comes to school and is deficient with empathy or is behind in, in care. And I think that we educators need to embrace social emotional learning. We need to particularly embrace the, the moral character aspect of that, what, what Friedman calls the legacy virtues and help our kids become good people, not just good students. When we talk about who you are is more important than what you know, what I'm suggesting, what I think we all agree is that we need to prepare kids not just to do well on the next test or the next report card, but to do well in life. 
Tom, many profound statements in that answer. And we've, we've told you, um, you know, a little bit about, you know, what our why is with this podcast. And many of our audience members are administrators. So we'll definitely link back to David Shield. We also are fans of Friedman, although I'm not familiar with the, the legacy virtues, which I love. You, your experience a building administrator, know all of the issues we face in schools and really the pools and some of the federal and state accountability levels that does absorb a lot of our time. If, if you were guiding an administrator 2021, they're starting their school year, what is one of the initial steps you would want them to take to begin this SEL work, knowing that it's typically not the type of information that's reported on or recognized, yet we also know in life, it's just the opposite, like you said at the funeral. So how do we balance those two as school administrators? Where would you suggest a school administrator begin this work? Well, the first thing I would suggest that school administrator do is grab a cup of coffee and take a deep breath. Uh, because is, is I made the comment earlier that everybody's got too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I'm biased, uh, but that's especially true of building administrators. So, you know, I'm with them. Um, another person to whom I refer uh, is Grant Wiggins. We, we all know Wiggins and, you know, the assessment guru. And my favorite comment by him is what you measure is what you value. And, and you know, your point, Joe, is exactly accurate. There are federal mandates coming down. In many states, there are state mandates. Uh, we are required to jump through these hoops on, on standardized test data. And, and I get that. That's all valid. And we can't change that. What we can change, however, if I'm a building administrator, is the dialogue among my faculty. And so what I might do is start off, you know, whether it's the beginning of the school year or we come back from a break or just a particular meeting. And by the way, there's a wonderful principal in Washington State named Kim Belanco, B-I-L-A-N-K-O. And um, I visited her a few years ago. They're implementing my curriculum, the formative five. And there were uh, about faculty meetings. And she said, oh, we don't have faculty meetings. I said, what? And she said, well, we have them, but we call them learning meetings. And I said, oh, that's interesting. The term learning meetings changes the expectation. So at a learning meeting, what I would probably do uh, is say, hey, uh, we're going to talk about something different today, not tip off what it is. People come in, whether it's a high school, middle school, elementary school, give everybody a three by five card, pencil, pencil and say, write down on that card, the initials of three students uh, that, you, that you worry about. Um, okay, they do that. And then I would say, here's what I want you to do in small groups. Talk about these kids, their interests, their strengths, what it is. And my guess is it's probably going to be hard for you because I think we as a faculty too often approach things from a deficit perspective. We find out what kids don't do well and we work on having them do that better. And we should, but we ignore too often what kids bring to the table. So let's talk about that. And then I would say, but hold on, that's not a fair question. You've got your cards, but let's do this. Let's talk about this at the next faculty meeting. So I'm gonna let you take your card with you, knowing that when we come back, that's gonna be the expectation. And Joe and TJ, I did that because I think too often that would be really putting teachers behind the eight ball. 
And what I don't want to do is have a learning meeting where people feel uncomfortable or where they feel they don't have the right answer. Knowing though that at the next meeting, that's going to be a task. I think they come in and they then bring that because they've looked at kids, they've looked at what we can do. And then I would spend some time in small groups talking about social emotional learning. My formative five, I set out empathy, self-control, integrity, embracing diversity, and grit is I think are the success skills, and I call them success skills because they're tied to success, that we need to consciously teach kids. And so what I would have as my goal is that my faculty at a learning meeting meets monthly. And one of the things we do is share what we're doing. Now, when I do my presentations, I say to people, the worst thing you could do is jump into all these at once because you're going to frustrate yourself and everybody around you. But let's take empathy. What if we said empathy is going to be the focus of our school from now to the next break? What does that look like? What things do we do in the classroom? Let's get together and share. So I've got two things. One is what you measure is what you value. I haven't changed the report card, but I've changed the expectation for what people are going to share at faculty meetings, what they're going to be talking about. I've also embraced the notion of collegiality because, and this is particularly a problem, as you guys know, in high schools, uh, people are very discipline-based. Rarely does the art teacher talk to the math teacher, talk to the English lit teacher. And I want people coming together and sharing on empathy or on integrity or grit or whatever, and talking about here's what we're doing. And I think those kinds of behaviors over time can, can change the culture. And then the last thing, and then I'll stop, apologies for the long answer, because I mentioned the word culture. In my last book, I use Joe Coleman's model of culture, and he talks about six components. He talks about vision, values, practices, people, narrative, and place. And the one I think we often misuse or abuse in schools is place. And when I do my presentations, I talk about the power of halls and walls to emphasize social emotional learning. And I think having a faculty talk about that, what does that look like? Uh, one of the articles I wrote in Ed Leadership years ago was titled The Schoolhouse at Midnight. And the premise was aliens get you, you're a principal, they take you to your school at midnight, you turn on the lights, what's the messages from the walls, what's there? And I think too often in schools, we, we don't think about that. Maybe we think about it in a teacher's room. Often in secondary schools, people share rooms. Rarely do we think about it in common spaces in the wall. And another column that I wrote for Ed Leadership was what does your restroom say about your school? Uh, often that's not a good message. So there's lots of opportunities to come back to, to Joe's question. There's lots of things we can do given the reality in which we all live. Um, you said a ton there that I could, I really could connect to and dig into, especially that last piece about what the restrooms say about your schools. I just completed, as uh, as I oversee operations, we just completed all our inspections. We inspect every single school, every classroom, every bathroom um, to start the school year. And so um, connecting to that big time, things need to be clean. They need to feel clean. They need to smell clean. They need to be bright. Um lights on, you know, doors working. To let, me, let me interrupt. You're right, comma, but I would argue even more than that. And I would argue that even if it's clean and bright and sanitary, which unfortunately is not often the case, um, the restroom should, should be a place where we say these are our values. What about having kids art in the restroom? What would be the message there? What about getting input on from kids on the colors? I mean, um, 
I, I'm teaching at the University of Missouri St. Louis, as you said earlier. We talk about this in one of my master's classes, preparing prospective principals, and you would be saddened, maybe not surprised, to know how many of the teachers in my class will say to me that in the schools where they work, they don't know what's in the kids' restrooms because they don't go in there. Uh, if they need to use the restroom, there's a faculty lounge. They take their kids to the door, they stop, they never enter. Well, no, no wonder this isn't a good place. And what's the message? Why would we let kids have a situation uh, that we would not accept for ourselves? So, yep. Thank you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The kids artwork, uh, messages about our core values, all that stuff. And, and we're looking for that in our schools when we go there. And so really connected to that. I also connected to what you said about the learning meetings. Joe and I have written extensively about a learning culture versus a teaching culture. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's, that's very, very cool. And then um, your formative five, I, I think it's such great advice. And I want to, I want to just emphasize something that Tom said here for our listeners. It's, it's best not to go after all five. You pick one, try to do that well before you bite off more than you can, you can chew. If you don't mind, I want to jump into our five, one thing, leadership questions um, and, and dig in there. We can come back to SEL, but uh, we want to hear from you and our, our listeners like to get granular with these questions. We'll start with this one. Who's one person or group who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where can we find them? Well, you know, the, the person who I follow the most is Howard Gardner, a retired Harvard professor. Howard, you know, is famous for his multiple intelligence theory that my school adopted, but he continues to write. He's got a great blog. His new book is called The Synthesizer. And basically he looks at intelligence there, is synthesizing and pulling, pulling information in from lots of disparate fields. And every time I read Howard, I come away with new ideas and new questions. Um, on that blog and with Howard Gardner, um, I think we all know a little bit about the the multiple intelligence, the synthesizer. Could you say a little more about that and and speak to like, um, it, does he take us more out of this just knowledge based learning, and what do we do with that learning? Yeah, yeah. And the synthesizer, it's interesting. Um, it is actually Howard's memoirs. It is not a, a, an academic piece about it, but he refers to himself as a synthesizer. And as he looks back on his achievements and his, his path in education, he finds that he pulls from lots of different bodies of knowledge. And to speak to your point, Joe, I think that's exactly right. Too often kids view information because we present it as discrete bodies of knowledge, as pockets of information. And you know the whole multiple intelligence theory was based on problem solving. And that's exactly what Howard says the synthesizer is. It's somebody who pulls information and uses it to solve a problem rather than, rather than just to answer a multiple choice question on a test. Yeah, it's profound. I love it. Um, we've been talking a little bit about that. Our teachers are not Google. So we've been in a lot of conversations re recently where COVID has forced us to use technologies that are great. Um, but have almost reduced the experience of teaching and learning, that it's dispensing information. And so I've said, you know, at different times, 
know, it's well beyond Google. It's what you do with that information. You know, knowledge is not power anymore. We have tons of it. It's really the use of it. So, so let, me, let me jump in and answer a question that you didn't ask. If I was a superintendent or had some control over the budget, particularly at a secondary school, I might say to my faculty, hey, I've got a grant of, you know, $1,000 or $3,000 or whatever, and I'm going to give it to a team that applies to solve a question about curriculum, but here's the but. But the team has to represent people from different disciplines, because what I want is my art teacher talking to my literature teacher talking to my math teacher, and I want the three of them are the PE teacher coming together with the science teacher presenting a proposal that requires kids to get outside of a discipline and coming up with an answer. And I think facilitating that faculty dialogue would have wonderful rebound effects for the way kids think and learn. Excellent example. Tom, what's one thing that you think people should try to do on a regular basis that would make a difference in their day or life? One of the things that I've tried to do, and like many things that I discuss, I do a better job of talking about it than reality. But I try to, to talk to people and read about things that are different than, than I believe and do. Uh, recently, for example, uh, showing my bias, I've started subscribing to the Wall Street Journal, which is not what I normally read. Uh, but it is healthy for me to do that. Likewise, in my work at the University of Missouri St. Louis, there are a couple of people who are good, honest, wonderful people who see the world very differently than I do. And I make a point of initiating conversations with them so that I can learn. The, the other part to that is it seems to me, and I wrote this in a column years ago, um, one of the characteristics I think of people who are smart is that they ask more than they tell. They listen more than they say. So I, I try to approach conversations and you wouldn't know it from this podcast, uh, listening more than talking. Is that a skill that you've been working on that you've tried to develop in yourself? I think it's, it's so rare. Like it's, it's, it's going the other way in our world with Google and everything else. Like it's like people are becoming more siloed and more extreme in their thinking and everything we encounter on our phones and on our computers is consistent with the way that we search and the way that we think. So um, just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and why you're why you're so intent on doing that for yourself and for others. Well, that's an excellent point. And it is something on which I work. And again, I'm not nearly as good as I should be. But I, but, but I noticed that years ago. I mean, we, as I said, we got into multiple intelligences theory. And one of the nice byproducts of that for me was consciously looking at how people solve problems and how we define intelligence, if you will. And what I noticed is that the people that I thought were really smart were great listeners. Uh, they, they didn't talk as much as they listened. Uh, there was a guy with whom I worked years ago, uh, Jim McLeod, passed away, who was at Washington University. And Jim didn't say much, but whenever he said something, everybody in the room stopped and listened. It was like the old E.F. Hutton commercial. So I made a point of saying, I'm gonna work at that. And as you can probably tell, I've got opinions on everything. Um, but I've really tried to work at biting my tongue. I'm better at it. And I think as a result of that, my listening means that I hear other people more. I hopefully hear what they say with more objectivity rather than wanting to jump in with my answer. 
I once heard, and I'm going to have to look it up, that the definition of genius is being able to hold two opposing viewpoints at the same time without ascribing to one or the other. So practicing that, I think, is critical. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that too. And again, it's one of these things I hear much better than I do. Yeah, well, we all need to try. So kudos to you. I mean, it leads to our next question. What's the one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Well, the one thing that I, I would like to be able to do candidly is a much better job of, of understanding people uh, from different demographics. And that's something on which I work, uh, but the world's changing. Uh, so whether or not we believe it from a moral perspective, I do. Certainly it's operational from a performance perspective to come back to those points. And so whether that's people of different uh, skin color, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background, whatever, I'm really trying to reach out and, and hear what folks are saying. I'm a white guy, I'm privileged. Uh, the fact that I'm white, that I'm male gives me lots of advantages and I know that, but I'm trying to do a better job of really hearing, of bringing empathy to situations so that I not only understand cognitively with cognitive empathy, but with moral empathy and actually performance empathy. So I really can't identify. That's a big chore for me. I read a lot. I talk to people and I try to get better. Incredible goal, Tom. And I, I think um, your level of introspection is something I don't want to gloss over uh, for our audience. I mean, I think that's something that I'm picking up here is the self-reflection, the introspection, and really the desire to hear what's being said and not said. And it really dives right into our next question. What's one thing that continues to support your growth as a leader? And if you could, how could others replicate that? Well, you know, the, the, the best thing for me, I mean, I retired and that retired is in quotes seven years ago from leading schools and I've been working at the university. The best thing for me is being around young people. And I'm old enough now that young people are teachers, folks working on master's degrees. I learn from them. Uh, the classes I teach, every class that I teach, I think my students learn from me and I know that I learn from them. And that's basically a long way of saying that as an administrator, I think the opportunity for us is to learn from the people with whom we work. Uh, we work with them. And often if we take the time to solicit those opinions, whether it is formal through surveys, I did a lot of that, or informally, we will learn. I'm writing a blog for ASCD now, and they take excerpts of it and put it on Twitter. And one of the things that got a lot of feedback is in a blog post I wrote uh, that I led schools for lots of years, and I wish that I had spent more time in the teacher's lounge. And I wrote about the fact that, you know, I was often busy. Uh, I, I, used, I met with people over lunch. I had formal meetings. What I didn't do was go in and hang around. And in retrospect, I always felt a little guilty, like I should be working. Now that I'm a lot older and a little wiser, I realized what I could have learned by just hanging around and chatting with people on a more casual basis and learning from them. That's, that's absolutely great advice. Um, a lot of our listeners are prospective principals, um, people who just got a job as an assistant principal or principal. And so I'm glad that you said that um, as, as a reflection of your time in, in, in schools, because I think there are, it'll make an impression on a number of our listeners. Last question, um, Tom. 
what's the one thing that you think, um, what's the one thing that you used to think, I should say, that you don't think anymore? Well, with some embarrassment, I used to think that uh, being smarter meant knowing more. And uh, however much you read, I was going to read more than you. And uh, again, I'm still a reader. But what I, what I used to think was that knowledge was the key. And now I realize that the key is knowledge along with empathy, compassion for other people, social, emotional learning. Um, I knew that back then when we got into multiple intelligences. So we focus on the intra and interpersonal. And now I know it even more. And I try to promote that in the teaching that I do at the University of Missouri St. Louis. Great, great, uh, and a great way to end. We bring it back to social and emotional learning and, and the key to success. I think it's a success driver for all of us. It's good that these are skills, right? They're not innate. We can learn them. We can have a culture that thrives because of them. This was fantastic, uh, Tom, and I, I think our listeners are really going to love of what you, a lot of what you said. Is there anything else that you would like to add today for our listeners, for educators, for teachers, for principals, a request, um, a piece of information, a place to go? Well, it, folks can visit my website, thomasrhoer.com. But what I want to end with by, is by saying, you two practice what I've talked about. What great questions. I've been interviewed tons of times. This was wonderful. And you embodied what we all believe, which is who you are is more important than what you know, and we can learn from other people. So this was a treat for me. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your time. And this has been an awesome interview. There you have it, folks. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. We'll link back to a lot of the things that Tom said today so that you can grab those resources in the show notes. And we hope you enjoyed this one thing series on how educators can build a school-wide culture of SEL and so much more with Tom Her. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghostbed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. 
And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Mm-hmm.